Welcome to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is a community helping New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. For more information, go to goodshepherdnewyork.com. May you be filled with curiosity, grace, and peace as we listen and learn together through this sacred text. And now a reading from Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Again, it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also, the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, You entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I have not get, uh, scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has been given more, and they will have abundance. Whoever does not have, even when they have, will be taken from them. And throw out that worthless servant into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was a troublemaker, and he was also a storyteller. And sometimes Jesus told stories about troublemakers. Today's gospel reading is one of those stories. And if you're like me, and you've spent much time in church during your life, today's story may sound awfully familiar. It's commonly called the parable of the talents, and it comes to us through Matthew's gospel. Now, if you go poking around in the Gospels, you'll find that just two books over, a Gospeler named Luke shares his version of this story as well. But today, today it's Matthew's turn to tell it. Now, in Matthew's version, a man is preparing to embark on a journey, and he asks three of his servants to manage a portion of his money while he is away. The master makes loans using bags of money called talents. He gives the first servant five talents, the second servant two talents, 
and the third servant just one talent. Now, the first two eagerly rush off to put the master's money to work, and in a flash, they each double their investment. But the third servant does a seemingly strange thing. He digs a hole in the ground and buries his master's money. Sometime later, Jesus says the master returns to his home, and before he even unpacks his toothbrush, he's already scheduling a business meeting. The master summons his three money managers to learn just how much profit they've made him in his absence. The first two servants check their balance sheet and report a 100% interest on the master's investment. Predictably, the master is pleased with their performance. But then the third servant steps up, shovel still in hand, and dirt under his fingernails. This servant criticizes the master's business practices and confesses that he was afraid of the master. So he buried his money in the backyard and now he only has his initial investment. When the master hears this, he is so infuriated by the servant's lack of productivity that he confiscates the hole digger's small amount of money and gives it to the servant with the most. And then the master declares, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And then, with a flick of his hand, the master throws the servant out into the outer darkness. And with that, the parable of the talent just ends. But what does it mean? We don't know for sure. Perhaps Jesus provided an interpretation of this parable to his original listeners, but if so, Matthew didn't bother to write it down. So we aren't told what it means or how to apply it to our lives, but this hasn't stopped anyone from filling in the gaps. Most American preachers, Bible teachers, and commentators will tell you they think this story means that God, like the Master, entrusts each of us with a set of resources, money, yes, but also skills, intelligence, ideas, time. And we can either steward these resources well, achieving a high level of return on investment, or we can bury what we've been given and face the consequences of our terrible choices. When we hear the story like this, we understand that whatever we have at our disposal should be seen as a leverageable asset in God's economy. And as any freshman finance student can tell you, assets are meant to be invested. Otherwise, well, they might as well be buried underneath a rock. So you better get to work, stewarding your time, talents, and treasures wisely, reaping the greatest possible reward on your investment. Oh, and also one more thing, God is going to judge all of us on our ROI. So if we fail to make a wise investment because we're too lazy, fearful, disobedient, take your pick, then God might just cast us into the outer darkness, a place that to some ears may sound a lot like hell. Now, if this makes you feel even a little uncomfortable, I understand, but you have to admit, this way of reading the story is awfully effective, which is why churches will often pull out this parable when they need more preschool volunteers or signups for the summer mission trip. Sure, Asking people to wipe the snotty noses of other parents' children is an admittedly tough sell, but it's a lot easier when the only other option is God's judgment. 
And if you happen to walk into a church when it's kickoff Sunday for the new fundraising campaign, you better believe you're going to hear this parable. You're gonna listen as the pastor subtly urges everybody to dig up the money that is buried in all of their pockets and invest it in the master's church where it can accomplish some eternal good. Let me tell you, if you end up in a church like that on one of those Sundays, they will raise some serious money that day. You see, as it turns out, fear of the outer darkness is a pretty decent motivator. After reading this parable aloud, my childhood Sunday school teacher once told our class with unbroken eye contact, boys, in the end, we're all gonna die. And each of you is going to be asked to give an account for the way you stewarded every idle moment, every uninvested dollar, every missed opportunity. I mean, yikes. Come on, God bless Mr. Steve, but that's a lot of pressure to put on an eight-year-old. With his ominous warning ringing in my ears, every night as a child, I obsessively reviewed the tape of my day to identify any missed investments. I would pray and ask God to forgive me for my failures to invest wisely. I would promise to do better, all in hopes that I would wake up not in the outer darkness if I happened to die in my sleep. Well, you don't have to be a traumatized third grader to, who relates to God like a, a bad boss in order to recognize that something about this way of reading the story feels, well, a little off. For one thing, it aligns rather conveniently with American and capitalistic values. More is better, less is less, and hard work pays off. In our modern minds, you have to give to get. You either use or lose. And risk, risk always precedes reward. As theologian Douglas John Hall notes, this reading meshes nicely with, and undoubtedly grows out of, the various projects of free market capitalism, get what you deserve justice, and disciplined self-improvement that have so marked American society. You see, when we hear this story, we hear it as people who are literate, educated, free, people who are submerged in a sea of American mythologies. Think about it. I am little more than a stone's throw away from Wall Street. All of our smartphones come preloaded with a stock market ticker. Many of us have 401ks and IRAs on which our financial futures are dependent. So it makes total sense that we would read this story through the lens of modern wealth management. But are we really supposed to believe that in God's economy, the rich get richer while the poor get tossed out on the street? Are we really supposed to believe that God wants to confiscate the little bit of money being hoarded under the mattress of a single mother in the ghetto and give it to whichever hedge fund manager in Tribeca earned the best year-end review? Are we really supposed to believe that our divine parent, the God whose name is love, will judge our entire human existence on the single standard of our personal productivity? Really? You know, all of this reminds me of an advertising campaign that was produced by the Nextel Corporation in 2004. In an effort to promote their cell phone's two-way walkie-talkie feature, Nextel launched a massive ad campaign with a one-word tagline, done. The print and television ads all told stories of workers in various jobs using Nextel's push-to-talk technology to complete their tasks. 
The ads worked brilliantly, at least in many markets across America. Audiences felt the stories were aspirational. In these stories, they saw the portrait of a life that was more efficient and more productive. Stories that convinced them that Nextel could make their lives better. But then Isaac Mizrahi, who at the time led Nextel's multicultural marketing, tested the same campaign among Hispanic-only focus groups, and he found it got surprisingly negative reviews. Hispanic audiences felt these stories depicted personal relationships that were too cold, lacked empathy, that needed a more human connection. The stories told were the same, but the perceived meaning of the stories shifted. Respondents commented that they would never just contact a person to ask a question, retrieve an answer, and then abruptly say goodbye. They perceived that kind of exchange as transactional, rude, impersonal. Instead, focus groups said they would ask about the person's life or their family. Maybe they would banter about sports, and only then, only then, would they discuss business. Mizrahi's discovery became a case study across the industry, reminding everyone that a story's perceived meaning shifts with an audience's life experience, culture, values, beliefs. What's the point? The point is that the way you understand a story is often a result of where you're standing when you hear it. In their book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Randolph Richards and Brandon O'Brien, warn against making an assumption that the dynamics of the Bible stories are similar to our own. If you were to tell a story, they say, that begins with the sentence, he was a good dog. An American listening will imagine a dog that won't chew up your slippers. An Australian rancher will think of a dog that can effectively herd sheep. And an Indonesian Minahasan might assume you're talking about a dog that tastes delicious. Similarly, when we enter the strange land of the Bible, we must remember that we are entering a foreign territory in which we do not speak the language, where the geography is unfamiliar, and in which the etiquette and customs are often the exact opposite of our own. You see, the most powerful cultural assumptions are the unspoken ones, the ones that we bring with us whenever we read a story, plastering them into every narrative crack we come across without without even thinking about it. But if we were to imagine for a minute that we are not standing where we're standing, if we were to imagine that we were in first century Palestine instead, if you were standing on the slope of that mountain in the Galilean countryside amid a crowd of rapt and frustrated peasants, if you were standing in that place in front of this wandering rabbi named Jesus who was telling this story, well, then you'd know all the customs and practices and assumptions, the values that this story does not name because nobody needs reminding. They're all here in this story. They're just not written. During the time of Jesus's ministry, the people of Israel were under extreme economic stress due to a social condition known as super stratification. It's a word that describes a society that is broken down into just two classes, a small group of privileged people on top and a mass of poor people at the bottom with a yawning gulf between them and extreme conditions on both ends. Atop the households were elites who lived luxurious, luxuriously, while the, parent, the peasants, the artisans, and the rural poor were all struggling to survive under the unbearable demands being placed upon them. 
The poor masses' misery was being caused by three overlapping institutions, each who were extorting the poor with hefty financial tributes. The first institution was the empire. First century Palestine was ruled by Rome, which had grown so vast it couldn't manage the entire task of collecting taxes all by itself. So they hired some middlemen, tax collectors. Now, don't think of them as being analogous to IRS agents. These were people who knew where the money was hidden and how to effectively squeeze that money out of the community. They were also notoriously corrupt, skimming money off the top, and lining their own pockets. And if you were getting squeezed by one of these cats, well, don't even bother filing a complaint. The practice of overcharging taxpayers was immoral, but it was not illegal. The empire only cared that they got their fair share when tax day rolled around. Interestingly, when Jesus befriended one of these middlemen, one of these tax collectors, they didn't stay a tax collector very long. Matthew quit his job the day he met Jesus, no questions asked, and one day, Jesus met the chief tax collector named Zacchaeus, who had climbed up in a tree. Jesus invited him to come out of there and have dinner with him, and that was all it took. Zacchaeus admitted that half of his possessions were the result of extorting the poor, and he returned the money to the people with fourfold interest added on top. The second oppressive structure was the temple. Now, Jesus' conflicts and confrontations with the religious aristocracy are so well known, there's really no need for us to review them now. But it's important to remember that just like the government, throughout history, religion has always claimed their slice of the pie as well. Unlike the empire, however, the temple was limited in authority. They couldn't just take money out of their members' pockets. So they decided to devise their own financial system, which required the help of middlemen called money changers. The, the temple required that sacrificial animals be purchased directly from them, and by eliminating all competition, they were able to sell these animals to the people through money changers at a premium. They also required the purchase to be made in Jewish shekels rather than common Greek and Roman currencies, and the money changers always charged a stiff exchange rate. You can probably see what's going on here and how Jesus might have felt. Jesus was enraged by the price gouging of poor pilgrims who visited the temple in search of atonement. He told the truth. He called the money changers a den of thieves. He burst into an uncharacteristic fit of rage and he flipped over their tables, symbolizing the oppressive inversion of the whole system. The third oppressive structure in addition to the temple and the empire, was the community economic system in our story today. By the first century, the agrarian system we witness in the Hebrew scriptures has morphed under the influence of commercialization. Wealthy landowners and their aristocratic families all sit comfortably at the top. They comprise, scholars say, about one to 2% of the population, but they controlled as much as 70% of the wealth. These rulers often had to travel abroad for long stretches of time in order to search for new business opportunities, engage in trade, and protect foreign assets. In Matthew's version of this story, Jesus begins by saying, for it will be like a man going on a journey who has called his servants and entrusted his property to them. Now, any Galilean peasant hearing this story would be quite familiar with this scenario and all its actors. In Luke's version, the man is explicitly called a nobleman so that nobody will miss what's going on. 
In order to keep amassing more power, money, land, and status in a time of super stratification, the lucky few at the top need to harvest as much wealth as they can from those at the bottom of the economic barrel. The only problem is it's mathematically difficult for 2% of the population to control the remaining 98. And besides that, if a nobleman wants to keep his coffers full, he'll need someone to put his enormous concentration of wealth to work whenever he's traveling abroad. So surprise, surprise, the wealthy elite also hire some middlemen of their own. That's right. The most trustworthy servants within each household would be appointed as financial managers. The system rewarded top performers with promotions in the household hierarchy. Those who performed better earned more trust, and those with more trust were given more capital. Or to use Jesus's term here in Matthew, they received money each according to his ability. Now, a talent is not just a bag of money. It's a bag of money that weighs up to 75 pounds and totals as much as 15 years worth of wages. You wouldn't just find a talent underneath a couch cushion. So the three servants in Jesus's story have worked long and hard. They have become a part of the master's inner circle. Once a household manager had their master's investment in hand, they had only one job. Use the money to increase the master's wealth by any means necessary. Now, according to the laws of Hammurabi, the minimum profit accepted by Mesopotamian household elites was 100%. Anything less was treated like a default on the loan. Anything more dropped directly into the servant's pockets. So as long as the servant met the master's goal, he was allowed to generously cover his expenses with excess profit. That's why in Jesus' story, it says, the first two servants rush off at once to begin trading their money. The sooner they can put their borrowed money to use, the more money they'll be able to skim off the top. Now, you might wonder what exactly a household manager does to make so much profit, and it's a very good question. The truth is that most of the profit they made was the result of good old-fashioned swindling. You see, the whole agrarian system was built upon the monetary value of crops and seeds but the prices of these items were set by the household lenders themselves. So whenever these servants went out with the master's money to buy, sell, or trade goods, they would manipulate the market in order to boost their profits, in order to meet their master's financial goals, and they could charge extra money as much as they could before the master called them to account. Most of what household managers engaged in is what we might now call predatory lending which is the practice of loaning money at oppressively high interest rates and late fees that targets people in desperate financial situations. The servants would use their borrowed wealth to make loans to subsistence level farmers who needed to plant crops and food to feed their families but didn't have enough money to pay for both. Suffice it to say, interest rates were a tad bit higher than what American Express is offering these days. According to scholars' estimates, first-century Palestinian crop loans came with interest rates of up to 200%. So just about the time that these farmers, who had never had the benefit of taking a high school accounting class, figured out exactly what 200% interest meant, well, they were already sitting on a mountain of debt so high they could never repay it, and the lender was confiscating the family farm, which had been foolishly offered as collateral. The whole system was evil, but it was incredibly efficient. 
allowing first century noblemen to siphon off more than 50% of a community's wealth production every single year. It all makes me wonder if the best metaphor for this story is a financial advisor. Maybe it's a mafia ring, because this thing is corrupt all the way down. Which brings us back to the third servant in Jesus' parable. He has earned a heap of trust with the big boss, which means he's made more than his fair share of bad deals. But this time around, he can't seem to pull the trigger. Rather than rush off to roam the countryside, scraping wealth from those at the bottom to be redistributed to those at the top, he buries it in a hole in the ground. Now, when we read this with capitalist eyes, this sounds downright irresponsible. It reminds us of an overly cautious grandparent who stuffs cash into a coffee can, wasting its earning potential. But in the first century among peasants, burying money in the ground was considered a good security measure. Just as Matthew says, this was the way you hid your money from all the middlemen who were also roaming the countryside trying to get their hands on it. But the servant, I think, here is not just protecting it. He's taking it out of circulation. He's placing it in a pit where it can do no more harm, where it can contribute to no more headache, where it can separate no more families, where it can steal no more land, where it will no longer oppress the oppressed, where it will no longer marginalize the marginalized and make the wealthy wealthier at the expense of the poor. Now, if you're still imagining that you are standing in that crowd before Jesus when he's telling this, then you can probably feel the tension in the air rising right now. Right when Jesus says that the master in his story has returned. After his two comrades receive the master's glowing praise, the third servant steps up to the microphone and he commits what is then, and I would say today, a rare and brave act. He tells the truth. He calls the master exactly what he is, cruel, merciless, temperamental, and that's just for starters. I knew you to be a hard man, the servant says. You reap where you do not sow, and you gather where you have scattered no seed. And then he points to a 75-pound bag of tainted money that still smells like dirt. Here, the servant says, have what is yours. When the master responds, uh, you can understand why the servant was so afraid. The master is a name caller with a terrible temper and now a bruised ego. He is indeed a harsh man. And in fact, the master admits that what the servant has said about him is absolutely true. And that's the problem. The servant has told the truth about the master in front of the whole room. And more importantly, he has exposed the system, demonstrating that this broken, unjust system, just like its broken, unjust master, is dependent on the willful participation of certain people. And this brazenness, this brazenness earns the servant a one-way ticket to the outer darkness where Jesus says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or as one scholar translates it, where the sounds of grief and anguish are the facts of everyday life. The third servant may have been fearful of his master, but he proves himself in the end to be a person of daunting courage. He dares to speak out loud to the master's face 
what most Jewish peasants will only whisper in the shadows. And because the servant speaks the frustration of the poor, the servant shares in the fate of the poor. When we hear the story from this perspective, suddenly the third servant sounds more like a hero than a villain, and the outer darkness begins to sound like just another name for the place where powerful people send whistleblowers. In the 1970s, a revolution was taking place across Nicaragua. President Somoza was a harsh ruler who was gaming the system for personal gain. His family controlled 40% of the economy. They possessed 30% of all farmable land. A large chasm separated the powerful from the powerless, the haves from the have-nevers. During this period, there was a small Christian parish on the banks of Lake Nicaragua called Our Lady of Solentanami. Each week, poor farmers, fishermen, and artisans would meet on Sunday to discuss the Bible from their perspective. They didn't have the benefit of fancy commentaries written by Ivy League-educated tenured professors. They had only a love for God, two working ears, and a lot of experience being crushed by the lucky few in their own country. Their reflections were captured in transcripts and later published in a book called The Gospel in Salentanami, a book which helps those of us who happen to live at the top of society to hear the Bible stories through the ears of those who are stuck at the bottom. On the day that the parable of the talents came up, nobody talked about how they needed to scrounge for enough money in their special offering to fund a new building project. Nobody was exhorting them to take more risks or to live their best life now. Instead, they discussed how appalled they felt at the master's behavior. They celebrated the courage of the third servant, the man who was willing to speak out on behalf of those being harmed. A Colombian poet that day named William kicked off the discussion by saying, I think this is a lousy poem because it's about speculating with money, something we all condemn. Like putting money out at interest, giving the money to others so they can work and work with it and then hand over the profits to the owner of the money. Another in the corner chimed in. Yes, it's really an ugly example that Jesus gives of exploitation, of speculation, of pure capitalism. A moment later, a man named Oscar, he also weighed in saying, I see that the man had to go away, and he wanted his money to increase, and he looked for others who were exploiters like him. And he gave them money so they could exploit the people too, and earn more, and get double what he was leaving them. But the guy that didn't get much, the guy that only got one talent, he didn't cooperate with them. He didn't have the strength to exploit his brothers and sisters. At least that's the way I understand it, Oscar said. Like I said, the way you understand a story is often a result of where you're standing when you hear it. If you hear it while you're standing in a Manhattan high-rise or you're nestled in a comfortable single-family home in one of America's massive, sprawling suburban neighborhoods, well, you might assume this tale is no different than the tale told by any water cooler at H&R Block. But if you hear it like Jesus' original audience through the ears of people who've been crushed by the prevailing power systems, the temple money changers, the imperial tax collectors, and the absentee landowners with their team of predatory lenders, well, then the master may be the last person you'd ever compare to God. When I take time to hear this story while standing in that place, I wonder if maybe if maybe Jesus' parable isn't actually about the successful investment of resources. 
Maybe Jesus' parable is about how we see God. Reflecting on this passage, the Episcopal writer Barbara Brown Taylor asks, when did we decide that the man going on a journey in the parable of the talents was God? I know Jesus told it as a parable of the kingdom, but how does that turn the little M master in the story into the capital M master of the cosmos? Haven't there always been a lot of masters applying for God's job and not all of them good? If you read the parable like someone living on a lake in Nicaragua or like one of the little ones who followed Jesus around, it's hard to see the master as anything but one more tycoon sitting on a pile of money so high he cannot see the bottom of it, which is why he has to hire people to keep it flowing from wherever it comes from without troubling him with too many details. As long as they double his money, well, they can make it any way they like. As long as they give back twice as much as he gave them, then they may de deduct their expenses to the full extent of the law, which has been generously amended so that people like the master can go on stimulating the economy for the good of all. You know, many of us have been told that God is like a wealthy billionaire who demands from us performance and productivity. Many of us have been told that God's pleasure or displeasure with us is based on our accomplishments and achievements. The bigger, the better. Many of us have been told that those who produce a high ROI on the dollars they spent the seconds they lived, the skills they possessed have somehow gained improved spiritual standing, both in this life and the next. These ideas have consequences. For when a culture like ours is formed this deeply by this kind of ideology, well, we might just developed a high level of tolerance for any master who acts like the one in this story. For a master who is a gamer of the system, born on third base, harboring disdain for those at the bottom and a desire to redistribute wealth to those at the top. A master with a God complex who's willing to take advantage of every tax loophole he can get his hands on and who will criticize, attack, and punish anyone who dares to challenge him. So maybe this story is trying to remind us that God is not like this kind of master, not at all. Rather, God undermines, opposes, and exposes this kind of master. Maybe God really is the one who blesses the poor, wins by losing, strengthens the weak, and uses fools to shame the wise. Maybe this story reminds us that the capital M master really is faithful to the faithless and generous to the stingy, slow to anger and abounding in love. I'm sorry to tell you that this way of hearing the story may not convince you to get more involved in your church. It will not motivate you to increase your annual charitable giving. But it will ask all of us, the middlemen and the masters among us, to make a choice about how we will relate to a society where there is extreme wealth inequality, and a convergence of systems that perpetuate discrimination, oppression, and violence. You can choose to pledge allegiance to the powers that be, ignoring the injustice all around you, and you may receive a hefty earthly reward in return. But 
you can also choose to tell the truth, to stand with the, with the oppressed, even if that means joining God and the other whistleblowers in the outer darkness. And so the choice is ours. We've heard the story, and now we have to decide where we'll stand. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Our church is theologically rooted in the Apostles and Nicene creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you would like to support us, please text Good Shepherd NY, all lowercase with no spaces, to 77977. That's Good Shepherd NY to 77977. Or visit our website, goodshepherdnewyork.com. Thank you for listening.